All right, good evening. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. It's always a blessing having Rick in the auditorium for sure. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. We have been going through Luke, and yes, we have gotten farther than Luke chapter 1, but we're kind of circling back around. Um, Pastor Hobbes put our schedule together, and we're going to look forward to uh, the incarnation, the, the, uh, the birth stories as we move into Christmas season. Uh, so we're back at Luke chapter 1, and uh, you can tell Pastor Hobbes put together the preaching schedule because he, he got one sermon, verses 1 through 4, and then I got another sermon, verses 5 through 80. So <laughs> they love to do that to me. It's a blessing. No, it, it actually, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to really let the, let the narrations narrate themselves, and then we're, gonna, we're going to look at Zechariah's uh, uh, benediction in the end of Luke chapter 1. But before we begin reading in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, just uh, uh, by, because we're going to skip over the, uh, the sections that have to do with Mary and then... Jesus' birth. But I would like to just draw our attention to the realities that these two stories Luke, Luke puts very closely. Right? He orders them together. That is the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And there's quite a few remarkable parallels between them, isn't there? If you think about it, both are remarkable supernatural conceptions. One, clearly, the Holy Spirit. The other, like Abraham and Sarah of old, uh, where Elizabeth was barren for all of her life. Both have important, uh, uh, appropriate uh, Davidic or Levitical lines tracing through them, uh, as, as John has the Levitical line, Jesus the Davidic line. Uh, both there's great rejoicing at their birth. Both are visited by the angel Gabriel. And he's really not, he scares Zechariah, and he, and he scares Mary. <laughs> he's really not, he's kind of a, I don't know if I'd want to meet Gabriel this side of, of things. He, he, anyway, we'll see that in a little bit. Both are told uh, what to name their sons. Well, that's kind of easy, right? You don't, have, you don't need to worry about listing, Googling, what should I name my child? You know, or what shouldn't I name my child? Because everybody's naming their child this, this name. But they're both told. Uh, they're both, uh, the Holy Spirit is both uh, uh, remarkable throughout. And, and they're related, after all. And so there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of parallels. But we're going to look at John's story tonight. And we'll move into Jesus' story at another time. But Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Sounds a lot like Abraham and Sarah. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that 
while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, and that would have been most likely twice a year, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right to the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Done. Check that off. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Sounds familiar from Pastor Kent's portion of John the Baptist. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and of power of Elijah. Okay, so there's pluses and minuses to be being compared to Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? And here's what we don't ever do with the angel Gabriel. Okay, we never ask questions. We never say but. All right, with the angel Gabriel, he's a pretty straightforward guy. For I'm an old man and... Angel, excuse me. For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said, I am Gabriel. Okay, so that should say something, apparently. Who stands in the presence of God... And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. So the last time I checked, unless there was a microwave for John, and there wasn't, that's nine months that Zechariah is not talking, that he's silent. The people were waiting for Zechariah and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. Can you imagine that? Zechariah coming out, and uh, have you ever played the game of charades? I, how do you even begin to motion to the fact that the angel Gabriel has come, and, and, that there's, and your wife's going to be pregnant? There's a whole lot of... That's quite a, that's quite a game of charades. And he kept making signs to them, and, and he remained mute. When the days of the priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, was, uh, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with me upon, uh, favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And so now we're going to skip a few uh, passages here and turn to verse 57. We're going to pick back up uh, we've, with the birth narrative of John. Now the time had come for Elizabeth, this is verse 57, to give birth. She gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is 
no one among his relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted to call him. And like a good husband, he doesn't talk because he can't. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, his name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in the praise of God. So for nine months he could not speak. Now after nine months he can speak. He can tell what he saw, what he heard from Gabriel. And fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And so now we pivot into verse 67. And now Zacharias, can, he can speak. And he's, in, he, he's informed of the great promise. And so the praise, the benediction in Latin, verse 68, benedictus of Zechariah follows. And what men have refused for centuries... What men have missed and still miss today is that there is a great promise. It's not John. John is just the forerunner. But the promise, nonetheless, is here or about to be here. And so after nine months, Zacharias, uh, he, he gets to communicate, and, and we'll see here through the Holy Spirit, proclaim what great blessing the Lord has. Verse 67, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show, to show mercy toward our father, fathers and to remember his his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham and our fathers to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of his salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And Luke concludes, And the child continued to grow, this is John, and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. You know, on the evening of July 16th, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. took off from an airport in, in New Jersey, and he was flying his recently bought plane, about three months old. Uh, he owned this plane, and he had only been flying for about a year. And he crossed over the Atlantic to Martha's, Martha's Vineyard to attend a family wedding. About midway through, as he's flying over the Atlantic, um, suddenly, uh, radar 
you know, shows the plane moving, uh, the, the, the flight control in Martha's Vineyard lost track of that plane. Instead of hugging the coastline where lights could be seen, he went right over the Atlantic. And it was just hazy enough that night, and it was already dark, that it was incredibly hard for people, for pilots in particular, to see the horizon. And this is something that I did not know, but that about 80% of pilots do not have what's called instrument rating. In other words, they can fly a plane, but there has to be certain parameters visually for them to be able to fly because they cannot fly by instruments alone. 80%. I don't think that's any of the, the, the commercial airliners, by the way, so I think <laughs> that, that, that doesn't include them. Right? They're, they're in the 20% category. But as he was over the Atlantic that night, he became what's called spatially disoriented. And so even though he, he couldn't really see and tell where the horizon was and therefore lost track of really where up and down was, uh, without visual cues, your brain starts to feel like you're going up or down, and it, and it actually compounds what it feels. So for every second that goes by, the false feeling of movement actually compounds. To illustrate this, a study was done by the University of Illinois Institute of Aviation, and they found that 19 out of 20 non-instrument rated pilots went into a graveyard spiral 178 seconds on average after they became spatially disoriented and lost sight of the visual cues of the horizon. 19 out of 20. And though the, the panel and the instruments were right there and for him to see, and they were telling the truth, yet what he knew and the way he should go, John F. Kennedy Jr. did a nosedive into the Atlantic Ocean. The, the computer model of his flight literally has the plane going straight down into the ocean. In the darkness of the night, Kennedy couldn't distinguish the horizon. He couldn't distinguish, and he became confused. It's a great tragedy to know that his instrument panel was giving him the necessary data to be able to make it across the Atlantic to Martha, Martha's Vineyard. But yet, because he could not rely on those instruments and, and he wasn't rated to do so, he lost orientation, became spatially disoriented. And likewise, it is a great tragedy that throughout history, God has revealed his promises, yet man has ignored them. Man has become disoriented through them and has not listened, has not listened to these great promises. Here in Luke chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 67, we have the, the greatest promise ever given. It's not the first time by any means that this promise was given, but Zechariah is, is praising God 
for his unfailing promise. And his promise is quite clear. So tonight, are we listening to his promise? So what is that promise? Well, first of all, a little note where we find ourselves in, in, in salvation history, as it were. All right, the church has not formed yet. Right? This is still intertestamental period. We're, we're in the very beginnings of the Gospels. And so I often think of this time still as, as, as the Old Testament. Okay. And, and so I think it's helpful to understand that, that these promises that Zechariah is, is, is speaking of, is preaching about here, he's prophesying, he's preaching, he's proclaiming about, applies specifically to Israel. Okay, we can't lose sight of that. Applies specifically to Israel. Neither the church nor the Gentile is in view in this passage. The church didn't even exist. However, there's truths and promises and the promise that is expanded to the Gentiles and is expanded to the church. And so tonight I'm going to try to explain this passage in light of the Old Testament reality for Israel, but then make application as the Bible does, as both the Old and New Testaments do, to us as God's redeemed in this age, the church. And so there's a great promise given tonight. I don't want us to lose sight of that. There's a great promise given tonight. And that promise is revealed in these few verses and we'll see three aspects of this promise. And the first aspect I, I think Zechariah is, is honing in on is the fact that God's promise is a promise from mercy. That really sets, sets the stage, as it were, for who receives this promise and, and how this promise even comes about in the first place. And it helps us as believers to, to walk circumspectly underneath the mercy of God. And so I think it's helpful for us tonight that this promise is first uh, framed within the mercy of God. And throughout history, God has revealed his promises and himself through his mercy, his loyal, tender love. Twice in this passage, Zechariah refers to the reality of God's tender mercies, his loyal love. His promise to Israel is is a testament to that fact. Think about the nation for a second. Go all the way back to when he delivers them out of Egypt. And he gives them the, the, the Mosaic covenant and, and he says, I'm going to be your God. I am your God. In fact, you could go tell Pharaoh that this is your God who's going to do this. And yet, as Moses comes down after after the great success of being delivered from Egypt, and as Moses comes down from Sinai, what's Aaron holding? What are, what are God's people doing? The very recipients of the ones who has great mercy on them. They're, they're sitting there worshiping a golden calf. What tragedy. What tragedy. And so no sooner does the ink dry on the Mosaic Covenant or the, ch the chisels, as it were, done 
Do God's people fail him? In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, we won't turn there for time tonight, but, but as God's giving them the law, he's telling them that this isn't going to work, that you're not going to keep it, that this is, you're not going to be able to do this, that there's going to be something else that we're going to need. There's going to be a new covenant that's necessary. It's not enough because it's not because of me. It's not because I set you up to fail, but it's because you don't have it within you to succeed. And so Israel demonstrates that time and time again, that they need something outside of themselves to succeed. They need a promise that God gives them. They need the mercy of God. And so we see three aspects of God's mercy and that outflows from this text. And, and that is that God's mercy is demonstrated through his relationship, through his relationship with them. We see that here. Let's, let's look at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we have a great opportunity to learn from the Spirit tonight and as, as all Scripture. And he prophesied. There's really nothing new that he's saying. And this certainly has the, the flavor, if you will, of proclamation or preaching as this word can be used, he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Make no mistake about it, folks, that God is the God of Israel. That is a significant turn. A significant turn because it demonstrates his unending, loving, merciful relationship to a people that did not deserve it at all one bit they demonstrate time and time again how much they do not deserve it as a people as a nation and so for me it is it is little one it is no wonder at all i mean it, 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 i am filled with wonder actually at the fact that god would call himself the god of israel but yet in his mercy he relates to them and he loves them, and he is their God. I'm reminded of the beautiful name in Isaiah where, where, where Isaiah really expounds on the God of Israel, and he says, he is the holy God of Israel, depicting the reality that God is set apart and transcended and great, and yet he, transcend, he, he condescends, condescends himself in humility to be not just the holy God, but the God of a sinful people, the God of Israel. And yet, so in his mercy, my friends, he demonstrates a loving relationship, covenantal relationship with his people. And he does this too, not only on the corporate level, but he does it on the individual level. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This is a very personal relationship, very personal promise for his people. He has, he has visited us. Here, it, it's not quite demonstrated in the NASB, but he has visited us for a particular reason, to help us to be our helper, to accomplish redemption for his 
people on an individual personal scale. He is their father. He's the one who redeems. He's the one who gives mercy time and time again. Think about your household. Think about you as parents and how you, you relate personally, mercifully to your children. How your children do the same with you. This is that, that tender, loving, care kind of relationship. But it's loyal. It is loyal to the core because God is Israel's, his people. His people. He's the God of his people. And so he individually relates to them. He does this with the horn of salvation. Look at 69. And often in the Old Testament, in Psalms, he is, God is the horn of salvation. But here, God is shown as raising up a horn of salvation. Yesterday, with the sun coming out, the snow melting, I saw, I think it was an a six, maybe an eight-point buck, but it was huge. Just in the middle, it was like two o'clock in the afternoon, just walking in the middle of our street. Before that, we saw a little buck, little, I don't know what you call a little buck, whatever it is. He had antlers, it was like a, maybe a four-point, I don't know, I'm not a hunter, or I have no idea what I'm talking about, really. I had to go look up six-point just to make sure I was right on that. But it's small. Right, just imagine Right, the horn of salvation denotes power, denotes strength and might. You got this huge six-point buck. I mean, it was it was big, it was big. But then you have Bambi, right? I mean, they're, they're, by its very nature, it, it denotes a strength and a, a power. There's there's one time we have Jackson. Jackson's our dog. He's like this tall. Right, you can't see that on, on on audio if you're listening to it later. But he's he's about a 60 pound dog, maybe something like that. One time he was running into the woods chasing a Bambi. Okay. About 30 seconds later, he runs out of the woods because a I think it was a mom, but I couldn't tell because I couldn't show. What, either mom probably because I don't think dads in the, in this kind of they don't really protect very much. Very, you know, they're kind of pathetic. But but mom came running out, right? And out came Jackson flying, running the opposite way. It was hilarious, right? I mean, it's one thing to go up against a Bambi. That's easy, right? Disney taught us that. But it's another thing to go up against a six-point buck. It can be intimidating. I remember when I was a kid living over in Eastlake, there was actually a police officer that was killed by a deer as he was uh, chasing a, a robber in, the, in our wood, behind our house, in our woods. And apparently he, he ran up to the deer, and, and the deer, I guess, kicked him right in the chest, just start, you know, startled the deer. They, it was pitch black. It was at night, night. And so it's one thing to run up against Bambi, but it's another thing to run up against a huge deer. And here's the power, the strength, the might, he raises up a horn of salvation, one that will not be defeated, my friends. That's the kind of relationship that we have with our Father. It's certainly the kind of relationship that Zechariah here is speaking of to the nation of Israel. And so like the nation of Israel, we are not Israel, but like the nation of Israel, we can cry out and have that kind of a relationship to our Abba Father. 
and we are adopted in Jesus Christ, and he is our father, and we share all the same privileges and all the same rights. And so we have a personal relationship because of the mercies of God. And so the mercies of God are profound to us tonight and are profound to the promise that Zechariah speaks of. And not only do we see the mercy demonstrated through relationship, but we see it through God's action, through his works. It's a relationship with God that, that is displayed through action. It is based on his promise, but yet he is not silent throughout history, nor is he silent in our lives today that God in his promise is working and is able to work. And so look at verse 71. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. As Israel kind of goes through, you know, as, as Zechariah could go through the, the, the annals of history with Israel, you could make a, a tremendously long list of the enemies, right, that Israel had. Think about it. Think about all the enemies that they had. And so sometimes you may say, well, Israel might have a paranoid personality disorder. It's a real disorder that thinks that everybody hates them. Everybody hates them. But you know what, my friends? It is true that Israel has a long list of enemies, a tremendously long list. If just the highlights are the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and Rome. And it is hard to kind of remember that just a few years ago, about 71 years or so ago, Israel wasn't even, didn't even have a nation, a national identity. In fact, I, I couldn't find it, so I won't try to, try to loosely quote, quote it, but there was an ambassador in the UN who, who, who and I can't remember the time frame, but, but they walked out of a closed council and, and for the first time they remarked, that it was astonishing just how many nations are against Israel. It's still true even to this day. Do you know where the word ghetto comes from? It's an Italian word. In 1516, Venice did not expel Jews like most countries did throughout history. But they tried a new technique, right? trying to restrict, restrict the social interaction of the Jew to a certain geographical location next to the local foundries or ghetto. And so the word ghetto originates because that's where Jews were all kept, if you will, out of the rest of society. The Holocaust, all these, all these recent things remind us of just the reality that, that Israel does have a long list of enemies. And to make a few parallels, it is true for you and for me who's in Jesus Christ. Jesus says that the world will hate us like it hates him. Now again, we keep Israel and the church very separate and very distinct. 
But I'm just, I'm just drawing these parallels for us tonight so that we can, we can take comfort in the reality that, you know what? God, in his mercy, is going to vindicate his people. He promises that here to the, to the Jew. And he promises that for us in the New Testament as well. That you and I will be in Jesus Christ and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. Amen. My friends, there is a great reality to the spiritual warfare. There's a great reality. And yet God in his mercy is on our side. God, in his mercy, has promised to vindicate his people. And so, my friends, in his mercy, not only does he demonstrate his works, not only does he demonstrate through his relationship, but in his mercy, he continues to reveal his will, his revelation, his promises. And this is really where I want us to, to hone in on tonight, just for a few minutes, is to understand that as we read verses 67 through 80, my mind couldn't help but really move to new covenant promises. And what do I mean by that? There are two covenants named in this passage. Did you pick up on that? There's the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Right? There are two covenants named uh, explicitly tonight, but yet there is one that I think all of them are wrapped up in and one that for sure is, is the emphasis here tonight, and that is the new covenant. We'll see that played out here in a little bit. But what I want us to just briefly look at is this emphasis that Zechariah is focusing on, the greatest promise ever given. Look at verse 68. I'm going to go quickly and just draw the parallels to this and, and to the new covenant terminology, that which we've been told about in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, and in others of the new covenant promises. So verse 68, we have the God of Israel. That is, the, the, the God will be their God, and, and they will be his people. And that's, that's new covenant language, not necessarily the, the Lord God of Israel, but that God will be his pe their people, and, and they will be their God. Uh, they will be his, that God will be, what am I trying to say? You know what I'm trying to say. God will be their God, and they will be his people. How about that? Amen. Okay? Jeremiah 31, 32, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. All those have that kind of new covenant language in them. And so I'm not going to go through all of the New Covenant passages, but I do want to highlight a little bit. Verse 69, where God is going to raise up the horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Jeremiah 33, and the reality that, that in perpetuity there will be a Davidic line reestablished. Salvation from the enemies and from hatred in verse 71. Isaiah 54, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 62 all speak of the reality that Israel's international rejection and abuse will forever cease and be reversed. Verse 34, Israel would serve without fear. 
God will allow them in Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 36, and other places to serve, enabling them, uh, giving them uh, loyalty and love to serve him forever. Serve in holiness and in righteousness in verse 75. And Israel will know God in his, and, and will be righteous in God. Isaiah 54, Isaiah 60, these are New Covenant passages. Knowledge of salvation in verse 77. There's a whole bunch of passages in Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 54, and elsewhere where all Jews will, be, will come to know God individually. You can cross-reference Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Forgiveness of sins in verse 77. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah all speak of the reality that the new covenant will cleanse forever sin. Look at verse 78. It's a beautiful, beautiful phrase. Because of the tender mercies of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Isaiah chapter 60 speaks of that reality. And then we'll see that too again fulfilled in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So my friends, the point of just rehearsing some of these, cue, these cues of new co uh, covenant terminology, I'm not necessarily saying that every single phrase in here in, in Isaiah, excuse me, in uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80 is New Covenant phraseology. But, it, but, but many of the phrases that we just spoke of either par parallel New Covenant terminology or are New Covenant, covenant terminology. And why is that significant? Why does that matter? Because the New Covenant was given to Israel, yet aspects of it are given to us as well in Jesus Christ. For instance, if you look at, if you, if you take all the, the, the covenant promises in, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, and elsewhere, and you, you list them out, about 20% of those promises actually apply to us. But they all apply to Israel. And so Zechariah gives us a beautiful picture that God in his mercy has revealed from long ago, Zechariah says, that God promised to save his people and he is providing a way to do so. And it just so happens in God's grand scheme of things that he has, he has invited us, the Gentiles, the church, in to the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that is accomplished through the person of the covenant, Jesus Christ. And so God made a promise, a promise that from his mercy, we are redeemed, we are saved, we are rescued. That is the beautiful reality of the new covenant promise. And it isn't based on us, it isn't based on what we do, what we know, where we go, where we were born into. It is based solely on the mercy of our wonderful God. So, through his redemption, my friends, through his mercy, we are redeemed and we are saved. So God's word is a word, it's a promise from mercy, but it's also a promise that transforms 
So let's look at, continue to look at uh, verses uh, 61 through 80, 66 through 80, and we'll look at verse 74. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God rescues us. He rescues us out of our weakness. He rescues us from the hand of our enemies. And he transforms us. And he transforms our affections. It's a curious phrase, but, but it's one I want to dig into for a second in verse 74. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Remember, this is in the, in the, in the nation of Israel. This is in their context. And we have to understand that Israel understood fearing God. They understood what it means to revere God. Right? The beginning of wisdom is fearing the Lord. They understood that fear isn't necessarily being afraid of God, but there's a reverence. But it's interesting here that, that it's, it, for several reasons, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And right away we may dismiss this and say, okay, well, once God delivers us from our enemies, we, won't, we will no longer fear and so we can serve him. But my friends, Israel has seen in the past God deliver time and time again from their enemies, right? Time and time again in their salvation history, God delivers them supernaturally, 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 time and time again. And so what really is the force, I think, for us to understand, if, if, we're, if we're understanding this through the mind of the nation of Israel. The question is, God, why are our enemies here? Why do our enemies exist, i.e., why haven't you delivered us now from our enemies? That was the, the reality that they lived under for hundreds of years and still do. Why haven't you delivered us from our enemies? Why did you allow the temple to be destroyed? hasn't quite happened yet. We've, we've skipped a little bit, but, but it's working up to that. And so, so the reality is, is it's not just a matter of, of, of removing enemies and I won't fear, or I, I, I won't fear anymore and so I can serve God, but it's is really a, a matter of, of transforming completely the affections of those who should serve him. In other words, there will no long, in other words, God is using enemies and and for some reason we have enemies in our lives. And so there there is fear in serving God. But there will one day no longer be fear. Fear will be replaced with love. Fear will be replaced with love. In other words, I won't have to fear as a as a Jew having to serve God, but I will I will I will be able to, to love God and worship him and serve him. My affections will be transformed. It's kind of like this. If I'm called into court, I'm not going to wear flip-flops and a hoodie, right? Because it's cold outside, but I'm not going to wear flip-flops and a hoodie and, and be chewing gum and walk up to the podium and say, yes, Your Honor, what would you like? 
Most of us would not do that. We would take being called into court seriously. And so we would wear the appropriate attire that depicts the fact that we are serious people. That was the reality for the Jew to come and to worship God. But somehow that changed from a reverence and an honor to a fear, to a fear of God, a horror, a terror, the God of judgment, the God who allows our enemies to prevail. But inevitably, Israel's relationship with God will turn from horror to love, and they will serve him, no longer motivated out of fear, they will serve him out of love. Jesus demonstrates this reality to us. On the cross, he serves. Peter, for us, gives the shepherds of the church this reality that we should shepherd the flock, not, not out of compulsion, not out of, not out of fear or out of someone looking over our shoulders, but that we should, we should love the church and we should love the souls of the church. And so, therefore, if Peter gives that to the elders, the leaders of the church, he gives that to all the church for us to enjoy, for us to love and to serve out of love, not out of fear, not out of just duty, but out of love, out of love for who God is and for what he has promised, not because of judgment, but because of his great mercies, because of his transforming work. Verse 75 transforms our affections. He transforms our heart. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He makes us holy. He will make Israel holy. He will make Israel righteous. And he has done that for us in Jesus Christ. And Israel will be holy and righteous before him all our, before him all our days. Turn over with me very quickly to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. For us, I want to make this one New Testament parallel. Because I think Paul uh, so aptly has a background here to, to weigh in on to, to, to what is going on. Chapter 3, um, let's just begin in verse uh, Verse 4, I think we'll be able to get most of the context. Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, he says. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul says, I have a righteousness. I had a righteousness as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I had a righteousness of the Pharisees, of Pharisees. But more than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. In other words, that was nothing. It wasn't real. It was rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ 
the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is the transforming power that the promise of the new covenant gives. That is righteousness that comes based in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in that passage to talk about the power of the resurrection of being in Jesus Christ. And so the new covenant promise gives us a promise of transformation unlike any other promise God had ever given. The Abrahamic covenant couldn't do that. The Davidic covenant do that, didn't do that. The Mosaic covenant certainly was, fell flat on its face and you could cross-reference there Hebrews chapter 8. It wasn't God who failed but it was God's people who failed. And so the new covenant, the new promise. God's word is a promise from mercy. It's a promise that transforms. It's a promise that reveals our Savior. Very quickly tonight, it shows us our need of a Savior. It shows us our abject failure of our sins. Let's continue reading. Verse 77, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. I'm in Luke chapter 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It shows us our need of a Savior. It shows us our sin. The new covenant doesn't just show us our sin, but it provides the way of peace. It provides the light that shines in darkness. Take your Bibles, and we're going to go to a couple quick passages tonight. Isaiah 59. I spoke of the reality of the new covenant. I spoke of Isaiah 59 a few times. Isaiah 59, verse 1 through 4. We haven't quite made it into the New Covenant. That's in the, uh, at the end of uh, 59, I believe. But here, verse 1, Isaiah 59. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save. In other words, the problem is not with God in all this. It never was. God never made a covenant, a Mosaic covenant, an Abrahamic covenant, a Davidic covenant, uh, a Noahic covenant. He didn't make a covenant that failed. But who failed in that? Verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear for your hands have defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongues mutter wickedness. No one sues righteously. No one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion, speak lies. It keeps on going mischief, dishonor, iniquity, death, murder. You name it. Isaiah 59 says it. God's hand is not too short. His ear is not dull. The problem is the people. And so the covenant, the new covenant reminds us that we need a Savior because of our sin. Turn with me now to verse uh, 1 of chapter 60. As we round the corner here, as we look at the beautiful ending 
Zechariah's blessing that we have forgiveness of sins because the sunrise from on high will visit us. Let's look at verse 1 of Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people's but the Lord will rise upon you, and, he will and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now go all the way to the book of Revelation. To the 23rd chapter, excuse me, to the 21st chapter and the 23rd verse. Revelation 21. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Its lamp is the Lamb, the promised one, the one that all history points to, the one who is slain for your forgiveness of sins. Chapter 22, verse 5, And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light or a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. We live in a time like no other in salvation history. We look back to the covenants that God made, and we marvel we marvel at his mercy to his people. We marvel at his mercy to us, graciously extended. Because of them and the scriptures, we understand the full weight of our sin, the full necessary need for the forgiveness of sins, and just how impossible it is, apart from God, to accomplish such forgiveness. The greatest promise ever given is the promise to forgive Sins, and he will accomplish his promise here to the nation of Israel, just as he has accomplished his promise to us, those New Testament believers. Don't turn there, but Zechariah twelve ten says, "I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me." Did you catch that? Israel will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one. Can you imagine the day? They will look on the one who, it's like Acts chapter three and four in reverse where Peter cries out and says, you have done this, repent. And what do they do? They're ready to lash out. But no, there was coming a day, my friends, where Israel will see the Savior for who he is. And they won't mourn for him as one, for only a, as, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. For us, the greatest promise ever given is the promise that God forgives sin. And later in Luke's gospel, in chapter 22, verse 20, 
we see just exactly how this is accomplished. When Jesus says, when Luke says, he took the cup, when Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God's word is a promise of mercy. It's a promise of transformation. It's a promise that reveals our sin and a great need for our Savior. I trust tonight you're not flying in the darkness through all this. That you see very clearly the promises revealed and the promise given of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Zechariah, in his blessing, gets a few beautiful verses to remind the people of Israel that God is at work. And what God says, he will do. Father, tonight I pray that you would help us as, as not your nation, Israel, but as the church to relish in all the promises that you've given to us and to your people, Israel. And that we would continue to marvel, marvel in the breaking of the dawn. the shining of light out of darkness. And we look forward to the day, Father, where the light will be emanating from your dear Son. and We will be with him and you in the Spirit for all eternity. We pray that you would encourage us this week to walk in the light to walk according to the promises and to trust in you. Thank you for the little lip on the timeline that we get to not only enjoy, but get to proclaim this tremendous promise and this tremendous person to a lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.